Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. This is our 152nd show. Today's guest is Ed Hajim, author of The Island of the Four Ps. Ed, I'm super excited to have you today. Uh, I'm super excited to be here. And it's well, unfortunately, Hajim sounds better, but it's Hajim. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. Uh, thank you for uh, telling me that. Uh, first, let's start with your personal story, which should be a movie. Uh, please tell us about your background and how you won the Horatio Alger Award. Well, you know, I, I was always going to be moved, but Sean Connery died. So I decided <laughs> I'd go onward. <laughs> no, I, I have an unusual background. My, my, I, it, it's, it's listed in the book. My father lost all his money in 1929, and, uh, but was married after that and went to California. And uh, uh, after three years, I was born. And uh, he was 15 years older than my mother. And he was a difficult guy. Having lost all his money, he had demons. He was, you know, he had come from Syria. He would, he had the mentality of a Middle Eastern potentate, maybe like Ibrahim in the, the Hajj. They didn't get along. So in 1939, she got divorced. And she took me from Los Angeles to St. Louis. Uh, she got full custody. He got $5 a, a week in alimony and child support. He only got Sunday visiting rights. He came on Sunday drove 1,800 miles in 1939, picked me up, and instead of taking me to the park or the movie, he basically kidnapped me, took me back to Los Angeles, told my mother not to look for me, and subsequently told me, I was three years old, that my mother had passed away. And I believed that for 57 years. Uh, what followed was a couple of years with dad, while well, he was a radio operator aboard a merchant ship. And so I spent time with the neighborhood, neighbors, when he came back into port, we spent time together, which was great. But in 1941, that all ended with World War II. And I ended up in five foster homes during the Second World War, which ranged from being cold and abusive, Dickinsonian almost, to warm and caring. After the war ended, uh, we, we reunited in, in New York City. I flew across country, age 10, all alone. I don't know how that was arranged, but it was arranged. We spent the summer in the YMCA at 34th Street, and then the next year in the hotel room in Coney Island. And uh, dad, uh, the year wasn't bad for me, but the year was poor for dad. He couldn't find any, any land-based unemployment and had to go back to sea. And I ended up in two orphanages, uh, first in Farakoy, New York. And then when I aged out of that, my father completely disappeared and I was become a ward of the state. And I ended up in another orphanage in Yonkers, New York. And Essentially, that's when my life changed as I focused on getting out of the situation I was in. I focused on going to a private college, which in 1954 was kind of for an orphan was somewhat un, not possible. There weren't scholarships and so forth as there were. And there were factors like there were two or three scholarships I could apply for. And I did get the Naval NRTC scholarship, which basically changed my life. I went off to the University of Rochester. It was the only school on my list of three. 
with Cornell and RPI being the other schools, which would get me through in four years. The others were five years. So I couldn't afford the fifth year. Um, I really had literally no money. I can describe my background simply by saying I graduated from grammar school, high school, college, and graduate school, and there was never anybody there in my family. Nobody ever to come to your graduation? Not one graduation. It's amazing you turned out to be the person you are and so uh, such a positive person. Um, why did you write this book and why this title? Well, I wrote the book. I, when I was 18 years old, you, I made a decision. In fact, that's what the book is all about, is going across the, the, the ocean on, a, on a, uh, a boat. I basically felt that that was when you leave high school, and go to college, you have really some very important decisions to make. And I made a decision to bury my background. I felt that a certain amount of denial was not, not negative. So when I went to college. I didn't tell anybody about my background. My father was a merchant marine. We lived in a post office box in San Francisco. My mother died when I was three. And that was the end of the story. And that stayed in place until my early 70s when I became the chairman of the board of the University of Rochester. They wouldn't put up with no background. And my wife and my children started to pound on me that they didn't know the whole story. Even my wife didn't know the whole story. And my children only knew half of it. They said, Dad, you got to put this out on paper. And I started. And it was nearly impossible. In fact, my daughter, who was a writer, had to write the first, the first draft of my background because I just couldn't handle it because I buried it for so long when I started to go back to it. It just I welled up so badly I couldn't handle it. Now I've obviously been talking about it for a year or so. I can handle it now. But she wrote the first draft. And they said, you have to have it. And then, then when Horatio Alger came along, you know, and said, look, we really have to have your background because Horatio Alger awardees are basically people who have done well in life, who have contributed back to society, but started out with little to nothing. And so I had to prove that I started out with little to nothing. And the person who was sponsoring me said, Ed, we've got to have the whole story. So I was in the process of writing the book. And so it worked out really at the same time. It was actually shocking because in the first book, the book called On the Road Less Traveled, which uh, was a book by Scott Beckett. He wrote The Road Less Travel. Mine is On the Road Less Travel. I was at the Horatio Alger uh, ceremony when I was going to be inducted. And I went over to the uh, museum, uh, Smithsonian, to the transportation exhibit. And I walked into the transportation exhibit. And here was a, a 1930s, 35, 36 roadster sitting there. And in the back of it was a line on a map drawn from St. Louis to Los Angeles, a black line. And that just, I mean, it's in, the, in, the, in my On the Road Less Travel book. That's how I opened the book. I mean, at that moment in time, I flashed back, my whole life flashed in front of me because here was the trip that I took when I was three years old with my father. And the cover of the book, cover of the first book has a picture of us in the 35 Roadster. Wow. And well, that's was that the I, same? Was that the same car? No, I don't know. We, we found we found a, an old roadster for the picture, but no, I didn't. I didn't have. We I didn't have a picture of his car. So, uh, so I wrote the book. First of all, the the on road less travel was like I wrote that use that title because I traveled a number of roads which have not been traveled by very many people. My background living in eighteen to twenty different places before I was eighteen. My shift from engineering to finance. Even my entrepreneurial experiences, very few of my experiences have been traveled by many people. Some have, obviously. I'm not all alone. But And the four Ps was something that as soon as I became the chairman of the board of the University of Rochester, 
I had actually officiated at 80 count of graduations and even more speeches than that. So I felt I had to develop something. And what I decided I developed was a message of talking to your inner voice. I felt that was one of the areas that people really didn't do a good job on. And it was one of the constants in life. So I developed what I consider a simple language. The language are the four Ps. You know, find your passions, which are overused word. We can talk about that. Find your principles, absolutely necessary in life. Find your partners. You're only as good as the people who surround you. And then find your plans. Written plans are the only way to know where you're going and why you're going there. So that's the reason I wrote the four Ps. And basically, I've, I've carried it now for you know, 15 years or so. And young people, one, more, one woman actually wrote her master's thesis on the four Ps and, and got, you know, got, into, got into a master's program because of, of the document. So I think it's been fun with me. And I think that basically, if you can simplify the language with yourself or with your parents or with your children or with your friends and talk about certain single things, I think you'll get things done. And also, when you go back to think about those things, you can look at them and say, this is what I thought about this particular arena. Did you not not share this with your kids? I mean, you kept this buried because the pain was so great for you that you just wanted to bury it as deep as you could? Pain, and also I didn't want any special privileges. I was ashamed of my background, and I didn't want anybody to do anything for me because I happened to be an orphan or live in foster home and so forth. And also, you got to remember, it's 1954. People like me didn't go to college. In fact, as you were shunned if you were poor, you know, they didn't want to know anybody who was who's in an orphanage or so forth. So and as far as my kids were concerned, they didn't have to know. I mean, why did they have to know that their dad, you know, wasn't like everybody else? And, you know, for a long period of time in the 60s, 50s and 60s, you know, for example, I never got help for my problem until I was almost uh, nearly nearly the 1980s when my father, 1971, my father died. Because if you got help in those days, people you know, looked at you kind of unusual. You're, you're not, you're really, you're not healthy. You know, you're sick. And so I didn't get any help ever until I was. In, and my father died. I decided I would find a woman to talk to him. But he died suddenly, and I had to have some kind of help because I we we didn't bring closure. He died with a heart attack in his car, and so we we were a little bit estranged. And so I needed help, and basically got it. But no, I I didn't tell the kids. Or my wife knew most of it. Ninety uh, percent of it. But so when we went back and looked at some of the, the papers again, writing a book, you got to separate what you remember f- from the facts. And luckily, my father kept every letter I wrote to him, and I kept every letter he wrote to me, and we spread them out on a table when we wrote the book. So actually, the book is quite factual uh, as far as we were concerned. You know, my father told a lot of stories, so I'm not sure a lot of it was true. So you write that you felt that life was like a dice game and it was rigged against you, which you've been talking about um, this morning. What changed as you wrote at 18 that made you go from thinking like a victim to someone who sees all the possibilities uh, and they have a positive can-do attitude? Because it's clear just talking to you, I mean, you emanate that kind of energy. Well, it was high school. I I transferred to the second orphanage, which was a real trial because what happened is that my father disappeared and I found out over 20, more than 25, 40 years later, what had happened, I can discuss that if you want. But he completely disappeared. I went to New York. He wasn't there. I came back and, and I'd aged out of this orphanage. So it, they eventually took a, took a while to make me a ward of the state. And they could send you any place. I mean, you could send you to reform school and so forth. I was 15 years old and so on. I ended up with a great orphanage or a great orphanage, which was four blocks from a super high school, Roosevelt High School 
in Yonkers, New York. And I looked around and you, the graduates were going to private colleges. 80% of the kids were going to private colleges. And all of a sudden it clicked in very quickly that this was the answer. This was the path. And I was going to find some way to get to a private college. I didn't know how I was going to do it, but I was going to apply to every scholarship. I put my you know, shoulder to the wheel. I did very well in math and science. I, was, I played basketball and baseball, you know, and I was, you know, I was graduated 14th out of 400. So I could get scholarship, but there weren't many scholarships. I was sure I was going to get the New York State scholarship because I applied to only New York State colleges. I didn't get it, but I got the NRTC scholarship, which was, you know, the only 1,200 given in the whole country. But really, it really, I mean, I had to spend three years in the Navy afterwards, but that was not bad. It paid, it paid books and tuition and 50 bucks a month. I didn't take care of the whole thing, but, you know, I could see my way through. And I, I just, I saw kids come back and they said, you know, this really changes your life. And so education became a real drive for me. As my earlier days, I was in, in when I, my earlier report card said, and he seems like a smart kid, but he's so mischievous, we can't tell. So I always get myself in a lot of trouble. I was an angry young man. And there's no toys about that because when you grow up the way I did, you have a lot of disadvantages, which I, I'll talk about how they can become advantages in some respects. But the one disadvantage you have, which is very difficult, is you look around, you keep saying, why me? Why am I in an orphanage? Why don't I have people at the graduation? Why don't I, you know, this? why don't I? And it's very difficult. So you have to channel that anger into making yourself better or else you're in trouble. Yeah, I, that's what it, the thing that impressed me the most about you was that you were able to go and do that. Uh, in, the in, the, in the acknowledgements, you mentioned some great books uh, that inspired you. One by my favorite interviewee that I interviewed uh, when I was in college was the legendary UCLA men's basketball coach, John Wooden, The Pyramid of Success. Please talk about some of these books that really influenced you and, and why. Well, you know, The Seasons of a Man's Life is my first, well, season of a Man's Life was my first sort of, you know, recognizing what life is all about. Levinson did a fabulous job of laying out the different pattern, patterns you have and the things you have to discuss and think about during parts of your life. And Wooden and Holtz basically gave me the what I consider to be the two most important words in my life, which is what's next. You know, don't be a victim. Use your energy to figure out what's next. And it's so important for, the, for you to do anything you do. And you look back at my life, even it was my fault, I still went forward. When it was their fault, I still went forward. The Lehman Brothers, for example, I did everything right, and they still threw me out, or they pushed me out. And I, but I didn't didn't fight them, and I could have. I went on to what's next, and I found my dream job. And then Howard Stevenson's book, you know, basically just enough. As you're seeking everything, whatever it might be, balance becomes extremely difficult when you're seeking money, work, community, and so forth. You know, to balance that. Understanding what's just enough is very important. I, I break life into four parts, self, family, work, and community. And it's basically a juggling act. It's a really juggling act. You, you can, if you focus on any one of them, which you have to, to be successful in business, you got to focus on business. You got to be successful in family, you got to focus on family. You got to focus on self, find out who you are. And as you're focusing on one, you unfocus on the other, and they start to lag a little bit. So my concept basically is that, you know, to basically refocus on an area where you've left behind and so you become more balanced. And that's basically been my thought process. So I get some enough money at age 47 when I graduated Lehman Brothers, when I finished Lehman Brothers, I had enough money, not a lot. So I decided instead of pursuing, you know, a fancy uh, big firm, 
I pursued my passion, which was to run a small company. And I went to Furman Sales. And I always say I, I traded the best dining room in New York for a uh, conference room with two hot plates. And I changed an office that overlooked the whole harbor for an office that overlooked the brick, brick wall. But that's my, my love. I love to run a small company. We had 20 million in revenues and 70 people. And it was all mine. I was the chairman and CEO, basically. So, uh, and Furman Sells is well-respected and well-known. It was well-known at the time. Yeah. But, yeah. but at that time, it was a little tiny firm on three floors, you know, with 20 million in revenue. So, you know, it, it was, and, and, and I knew Furman Sells pretty well, but I left Lehman Brothers, which was a premier, you know, we had a white glove dining room, which was well-known all over the world. And, you know, the King of Spain and the Federal Reserve Chairman are having lunch with us. And so, and I went to Furman Sells because it was really my dream. I had enough money. You know, I, I was satisfied. Didn't have enough to take care of everything, but I figured I could do okay. And so that, that's the balance that I sort of sort of saw through. And those those books have given me, I have read, read probably as many self-help books as anybody, because I really believe that's what took me, got me through. Albert, I started Albert Ellis. I, I've read Bennis. I've read just about everybody. And it, it really is helpful. I mean, I have whole shelves full of people. And you know, a lot, of them, a lot of them I've carried forward. You know, The Secret was a great book for me. And by the way, this book I want, I hope will fall in the category <clears throat> of you know, Who Moved My Cheese or or, or maybe uh, the, the Alchemist or something like that. Because so I believe a fable allows people to absorb ideas a little more easily than you say, this is how to do it. You know, the how to do book, as you say. Yeah. And, and I want to mention, talk about that. How hard is it to write a book like this over a traditional business book? Because this book reminds me of a Mitch Albom type books, you know, like you mentioned, it's a fable. Yeah, it's, it's very hard. It, it, you, you translate. First of all, you start off with ideas. You say, this is the idea. First, you got to get the idea you want to you want to you want to communicate. You want to convey. Then you got to look at the reader. How has he or she going to interpret what you've just said? Then you got to take it to a next level and put it into a context which is fictional. So it's really got I me. Mean, it's a three-part problem, and uh, I find writing my autobiography was very good for me because I learned how to convey ideas and understand what the reader was going to read when she read he or she read it. Then the fable, basically, in my mind, you had to translate it one step up, where you sort of decided how to communicate it and yet it be, you know, a little more subtle. I also found that fiction and or this kind of book basically allows you to give the reader more discretion. He or she can basically use what you have for their purposes, rather than in many respects when you do how-to books or, or business books, you're telling what you did and here's how to do it. And my convention with this book is I'm hoping people take this framework and basically use it for themselves because I really believe people are totally unique and it's very important to understand how unique you are and what that requires. You write the future normal is going to be more dynamic and less certain. And I think we're experiencing it now, but please explain what, what your thoughts are on this. Two simple things. First of all, technology, which I know you can <laughs> communicate. Technology is moving so fast today that the social fabric we have is hard is having trouble handling it and i don't see technology slowing down that's you know one major experience that i think everybody should understand remember i graduated college on a slide rule there's no computers i graduated graduate school without the internet and it's just moving at an extremely fast rate in almost every field i mean this chatbot thing is a, is really you know it could change things completely everything's going to be digitized robotics and so forth all of this stuff 
changes in medical science. I mean, I don't know. At Rochester, we we found a, a mole rat that lives longer than every any other uh, rat in the business. Are we going to extend life? And then the other thing is, is geopolitical. You know, America has been the ruler of the world, the benign ruler of the world, relatively speaking, since the Second World War. And that has changed. I mean, you have a hegemony, I think, that is very important, and it's changing almost every day. You know, Xi Jinping is going to Moscow. Uh, Xi Jinping has made some transactions with Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia has now made a, 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 some sort of detente with Iran. So we're seeing a huge change in, in the geopolitical arena. So these two changes are, are big enough. And then, of course, you have climate change in addition. You know, so I think the changes are moving at a more rapid rate. Uh, and I think the people are going to have to cope with them. And I think being that's why my book, I think will be more easy to cope with them if you have a, a real constructive conversation with your inner voice. So I wonder, many people are frightened uh, for their future and their kids' future. I mean, it's I find it's a scarier world now. Maybe I'm 62 and I just realized, you know, the risk involved. What's your advice on how to speak to your kids uh, about what's going on in the world? Because it is, it's between the domestic issues that we have and the global issues. Well, you know, when I was this, I was a strategist for 50 years on Wall Street, and we got to periods like this, and this is one of those periods, is I always say the world doesn't come to an end very often. That's a little bit flip, but it's true. And and you know, one of my one of my goal, one of my early tutors in, in the business were two old guys at Low Broads, and they could see every problem possible, 19 in the early, you know, early 60s and 70s, you know. And and there were some problems of significant situations at basic at that time. I tell people that there's more opportunity now than ever before. I mean, as we talked about technology is opening up whole new areas for us. I mean, just think about the changes in medical science, which are going to occur. Just change. Think about the changes in everything that we're going to do. In addition, you know, I, the whole world is open to you today. So I tell I tell people to basically find your passion, find something you really want to do, combine it with your talents and your principles and go after it, but try to find a wave. There's going to be plenty of waves that we may be able to follow in the next, you know, 40 years. Think about them. You know, what do you want to get on? And it's not necessarily about money. Uh, one, of my, one of my close friends is, is, a, is a surgeon who does curvatures and spine on, of the spine. He is in Ethiopia because there's where the greatest demand is. There's so much opportunity today. Uh, I think the young people, they have to get education, more education than ever before. But there's more opportunity today, and I try to open their eyes to that thing, and not to worry too much about the problems. There are going to be problems. There have been problems in every area of history. I mean, the '60s were people, you know, Kent State, those shootings on campus, and so forth. There was a drug culture that that's you know as bad or worse than today. And so it's, there's always been problems in the war. In many respects, we're in a rather benign period. We haven't no, hadn't had a depression or a real war. I mean, the Ukraine war is bad but it's not a world war in a long time. In fact, the last 40 years in my mind have almost been too good. <laughs> you know, if you look at, it, you know, yeah. things like, you know, the stock market was 600 40 years ago, it's 30,000 today. So, yeah. and you know, everybody, if you com compare poverty, you know, when I was a child versus poverty today, there's no comparison. Yeah. It's uh, everybody thinks about the good old days, but they weren't so good. And, no, and they like, weren't. Oh, no. yeah, 
Yeah, because that's how people like to remember it. Is there uh, so let's talk further about the book and and the fable itself. Is there meaning in the name you chose? Uh, and is it uh, Marketus? Is that how you pronounce it? Marketus, yeah. Well, Marketus was my, ne- my was my name to plumb when I was a strategist. I wrote weekly, you know, weekly projections of the world, and so I, I was Marketus, and I didn't want to become head agent, so I I used that that name to plumb. But I also wanted the young man to be searching for markets. I think one of the things young people should do is to think about markets, structures that they basically can enter. And markets basically uh, you know, overcome. Markets have cycles. And I go in my, the planning part of my book talks about cycles. But you can find a market you're really interested in, you know, that fits your principles and passions, and you can find the right partners. You can really ride it a long way. In fact, you, you read autobiographies. You'll find that almost every successful person found a market and rode the rode a wave. And so, as, and as, as far as Archimedes is concerned, you know, I wanted a wise man who was an inventor, who basically, you know, who knew how to ask questions. If you read about Archimedes to some extent, you know, he's a big he questioned everything, and then went after it. I, you know, I believe very strongly in what I call the scientific process. You know, observe, design a, a, a program execute the program, analyze, and then repeat. And that's kind of an Archimedes sort of mentality. Uh, also, he has a, you know, it's, it's there, there's a sort of gravitas to Archimedes. But in many respects, when people read this book, they'll go either two ways. They'll think about an old, old man, an old person talking to a young person, or if they're careful, they'll recognize it may be the same person, just you talking to yourself as you're going through life. And just quickly give them a structure of the book, like uh, uh, the background of the story, because like a lot of the questions I'm going to ask you are based on on this uh, a story, story about a boy who who basically is on a, on a boat with a navigator and a captain. For me, it wasn't my mother and father, but any other, any other young man would have been. And he goes to an island and he's met at the, on the beach with a an older man. And they go to these four villages, the village of passions, the village of principles the village of partners and the village of plans. And in each case, there's it's an allegoric experience. When you go to the village of principles, you're climbing a large mountain to get there. You know, when you're going to the village of partners, you're climbing down that mountain and you help each other get down the mountain. And you get on a boat where without the partners on the boat, they couldn't get through the rapids. And then the village of plans. Each one of these places have a particular aspect to them. In the village of passions, there every possible occupation is there. And the young man goes into these different occupations, engineering, you know, music, uh, even food, everything and so forth. In fact, in the Village of Passion, there's a blue area where you shouldn't go because there are negative passions and so forth. So this is a basically when he makes the trip through the whole thing and gets to the end and he sits and does his life plan, which I highly recommend. When I was uh, giving a talk to a university a while back, uh, one of the young people said, Ed, you're giving me, Mr. Hageman, you're giving me too many ideas, which I do. I, I believe to give everybody lots of ideas and hopefully one or two will stick. Because if you spend two or three hours on my book and you get one idea, that's probably worthwhile. And my daughter, who's a TED Talk a curator, says, Dad, you know, you just give too many ideas and you talk too fast and, and so forth. And I said, no, darling, it's not a TED Talk. It's an Ed Talk. Lots of ideas. <laughs> none of them too well honed. <laughs> but so the book basically at the end, you take your passions, principles, partners, and then you sit down after going through you know, the, the planning, the planning village, and you write down 
where you want to go and how you want to get there. And it really makes my mind, that's what I told that young man at the college. I said, right. He said, I one idea is write down where you want to go and how you want to get there. Once you write it down and look at it, you'll see how strong it is. And by the way, having that, when it comes to be a turn in the road, it's not the end of the road. You take your plan out, say, turn the road, now I'm going to change my plan. So that's, I think, and it's fun because the two, the older man and the young man talk back and forth and we enter, we actually put a, put a young lady in there halfway through. And she also gets, it gets to be a, a three-part conversation. So why did you pick a boat to go on this journey as opposed to maybe something more modern like a jet plane? Because a boat characterizes the, the uh, going on an ocean between two bodies characterizes the change that one goes through. When you go 18 and you leave, you don't go on a, on a water, but you go to a college and you're now in a totally different experience or you go to a junior college, or you go to work. But it's really the big transfer. And I think that the, 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 the vision, the allegorical experience of going on a boat, leaving one harbor, and getting to a next one basically conveys that idea that you're basically going through a massive change. Jet planes too quick. Uh, getting on a boat and having a navigator and a captain and driving up, you know, recognizing the new beach is so totally different than the place you left. All the that symbolism all the symbolism is there. Um, th there's an item called the test mark uh, that uh, Marketus has given. What is it and, and why did you name that? Well, we, we want to stay with this sort of Greek mentality. And there's something called, a. I think I can read it here, a, 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 a testera marcana, which is the, it's, it's called the operation of four. Let's see if I can find it here. It's the operation of, the, of, of four different elements. And since we had four P's, we basically called it, a took it this testera macana and made it testamar. We just wanted to, you know, sort of basically create something which was totally new, different, and so forth. Because really what this is, is this is your mind. This is your, this is your, your inner voice. But it's, a, it's a, a mechanism, it's a computer that collects everything that you're thinking about. And we wanted to create something which was unusual and different. And people would sort of, oh, what is that? You know, what is that? But it is, it's it's called a mechanism for four elements. And it's a Greek word, two Greek, yeah. two Greek words, which we put together. It it's, sounds like it's, a, it's a machine of four, of four elements, a testera marcana. <laughs> sounded very cool. So we have a question from the audience. How does a 60 plus in, uh, incorporate these principles when they are already deemed obsolete with such an emphasis on the youth? Oh, I think that every, I think almost every morning you get up, you can rethink the four P's and some, because I think that basically your, your passions constantly change. You continue to add principles. You continue to seek out new partners and you should be drawing up new plans. And that sounds corny, but it's, it's been my life. And in fact, writing a book, I sat down and said, you know, my passions have changed. Well, let me just go back and have some fun. In high school, my, you know, I think passions, first really the real passions start to come up. Mine were baseball and basketball, bath, science, and girls. When I went to college, those morphed. After my freshman year, after, after my, my math and science morphed into engineering and finally chemical engineering. My, my, my athletics, after my freshman year, I realized I wasn't going to be a professional athlete, morphed into extracurricular activities. And I was, I did everything. I was a social chairman and I was a, a editor of the New Year book and I was a student government. I was, 
you know, I have charge of the, the, the student fees. I was a chairman of the finance board. And I also created a humor magazine in my, in my, in my junior year. And that basically changed my life because I found one of my true passions was putting people together to solve a problem or create a product. And it was a great experience. I can spend a lot of time on humor magazine because it really changed my life. I mean, I, I learned so much. I learned that what I really get a kick out of is helping people do better than they think they can. That was, that was my, that was my real passion. So when you're 60 years old in, th- in today's world, by the way, one of my weaknesses at 66, I sort of, I didn't retire, but I didn't take the next step. I, my, Robert said I was tired because I had sold my company and everything. I closed out my whole experience as far as work was concerned. But I think at 60, you got to sit down and think about, you got to think about what's the future. You know, who are you now? And you're changed. When you're 60, you've collected a whole bunch of passions that now have been converted a bit. And they have, by the way, your passions are affected by context. You know, my father, you know, 1900, me in 1936, different passions. You know, he lived to a very difficult set of circumstances from 1900 to 1970, unlike mine from 1936 to today. You know, the first part of it wasn't so great, you know, depression, the war. But since the early 80s, it's been a, a wonderful ride. And I'm glad I took advantage of it. And I can I can talk about that. 1983, becoming a manager of an investment bank on Wall Street. And 20 years that we grew our firm 20 times. And people said, Ed, you did a great job. I did a good job. But the, the stock market was up 10 times during that period. I had the wind at my back. And now, you know, when I made the big change in 72 to leave work, and become the chairman of the board of trustees of the University of Rochester. I was 72 years old. And I actually wrote a paper when they asked me to do it. I said, no, I'm too old. The guy said, no, you're not. And that was one That was one of the great experiences of my life, being the chairman of a major university. I mean, I we raised more money in the eight years that I was the chairman than they raised in the previous 150 years combined. So that was a quite thing. And even, even when I was, I was 60, I was 60, 61, I was 66 when, when I founded the golf course in Nantucket. And so, you know, that is another whole world that, that I got involved in. We've created a, a golf course from scratch. Uh, reason being is I got rejected the go- other golf course on, on Nantucket. They said they didn't want me, so I decided to create my own. And now we're the largest charity on the island. In fact, I claim we're the largest charity in the history of the island. We provide, last year we provided three academic scholarships, two academic scholarships, and 10 vocational scholarships. So you're 60 years old, you know, the, this whole vocational scholarship thing is a whole new thing for me. I mean, and it's brand new. I mean, I'm, I'm going to become the commencement speaker at the, the uh, Florida, Key, Florida Keys College commencement on May the 3rd. And these are all kids that are community college graduates. And so this is a whole new thing. So I think that that 60, just go back and take out the yellow pad or the iPad and, and go back to work and say, you know, what? let's dig down and let's figure out how have I changed and what are the kinds of things I want to do that I haven't done? You know, and by the way, it goes quickly. <laughs> and that's what I think every day. And I'm 62 and I'm thinking, Jesus, I can't believe that I've been living in Philly for 10 years. It was like a blink of an eye. You're 85, but my 86. Not, 86 <laughs> And yet, I don't think anybody would guess that you're more than your late 50s, early 60s. And oh, yeah. you'll <laughs> coast into 100, no problem. Uh, well, some... yeah. We are getting lucky. I mean, your 60-year-old who asked the question will probably, you know, come close to 100 if they're reasonably healthy. And there's another thing, you know, how do you spend your time? You know, as you get to 60, one of the things you should be spending time on is, 
you know, exercise, health. You know, if you read the book, the Harvard book about longevity, you know, social engagement is more important than, than exercise and diet. You know, what you, having something to do, getting in the morning, which is real, is, is gives you greater longevity than eating the right foods and walking around at night. So, well, then I'm expecting my mom, who's 80, going to be 85, to easily eclipse 100 then. Yeah. If it's all about social, my mom's going down that path easily. Um, you, uh, a question from the audience. What's your suggestions for people who are neurodiverse? How should they use these principles? What, what, what kind of? Uh, neurodiverse. Meaning? Uh, uh, Neurodiver- uh, neurodiverse could be, uh, what's the great t- uh, term for it? Um, people who are t- uh, transgender. Oh, well, uh, that, I think that's, you know, again, the transgender, transgender people or neurodiverse, as you call them, I, I think they're actually, it's the luckiest period of history for them. You know, in my era, you can absolutely not, you know, talk about those kinds of things. You were totally rejected. I mean, if you were gay, it was a disaster when you went to school. I mean, people reject you completely. Today, I think these principles totally apply. And, and basically, they can realize their passions today. And in the old days, they couldn't. They had to hide most of the things, that hide who they were. In my breakdown between self, family, work, and community, as I call it, which is giving back, the self part of it is where these diverse people can basically really accept who they are and what they want to do with their lives more than any other period of history. And I botched this. I just looked it up and I saw someone put up here. Uh, neurodiverse, I should know better because I have a daughter with Asperger's. Uh, it is how uh, people with learning dif- uh, difficulties, autism, ADHD. It, it's well, I think there, and I have, I have one of my grandchildren is a learning, uh, she has a learning, a serious learning problem and working, we're working very hard on that. Uh, the research I've done on that, and a woman named Carpenter wrote a book on this, which is worthwhile reading. It's called Something Lovely. It's a very wonderful book. For those kinds of people, their passions have to be a little bit narrower, but they can be found. This particular young lady had a serious learning problem, but she found photography as something that she could do. Another one of my friends who has a, a, a learning disabled child found that she has a very great interest in small children. So she became a nursemaid you know, in, a, in a kindergarten area as an assistant teacher. So I think you have to narrow it down. And there are schools now, more than ever before, there are schools for these, these you know, people. They're very different schools. They're, they're excellent schools for dyslexic kid, kids right now. Kids with multiple learning problems, as I think my, my unfortunately my granddaughter may have, uh, we're, fine, we're struggling with that. And she is struggling with it too. And today there are people that basically are very well trained to handle and find a place for these people in society. And, uh, but I do say, I must admit, there are more of these kinds of kids available or are not available, but are, that are around today than I ever can remember. But there are more facilities for them too. But I think what I, my recommendation is attempted to, to find a school that will help them and then help them narrow their interests so that there's something they can find that they can be passionate about that they can do. You know, obviously each one has a little different kind of problem, but there are so many things to be done today. If they learn a particular trade, then they can, you know, find their place in society. I'm I sorry to, about going. I, I should have known what Nord was too. But, uh, 
No, and I have, as I mentioned, my daughter, my youngest has Asperger's and she went to college, went to University of Arizona, and she works in the film and television industry, which is what she always wanted to do. And I'm helping support uh, her interest. And she was just on Abbott Elementary uh, this week as wow. a, 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 as a um, extra, but she's in it a lot uh, of this. And so we're all super proud of her for doing it. But yeah, that's, a, it's a, it's a, ongoing daily challenge to find the right place um she she likes where she's at but it's a terrible industry the movie industry so uh, i thank you for asking that question i apologize for um fumbling the description of that but i was glad you answered the other part of it too because i'm sure people have that question as well um why should we practice simple thought and reflection which probably was much easier without so many distractions I, I believe basically the simpler the message you send to yourself, the better off you are. And this goes back to religion and you're repeating certain things to yourself. So I think that developing a simple, and that's one of the, 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 the stresses for this book. There are basically eight words in the book. If you can deal with these eight words in good, good fashion, I think you can basically build a life plan better than you could if you get distracted by all kinds of things. In other words, what I call self-family work and community. Those are very important. Then the four Ps. And these basically are messages you send to yourself. If you remember possibly the Chinese medicine cabinet, I want to put the, in each drawer all of my thoughts so I can go back and look at them. And that's why I want to keep it as simple as possible. Simple messages. For example, people say, what, is, what are your principles? Let's just be very simple. Have one principle, do unto others. You know, and I, I was taught that with the guys. I, I got taught the golden rule with the golden ruler. You know, yeah. I went, to, went to a Catholic school, and they, you know, if you did, you didn't. If you did right, you went to the right place. And they said if you do wrong, you go to the other place. So I knew quick, quickly. But it's a simple, simple message, and great messages are very simple. I mean, one of the messages in my first book was that skill is important, but luck is essential. And I, I think that's absolutely true. You got to recognize, and when you have luck. There's two kinds. Of, when you have good luck, you should basically also accept the fact that it wasn't all you. And but more importantly, when you have bad luck, accept that it's not all you. Also, you know, it just happens, and then go on. That's why I end my first book with the word "What's next?" Because I think that's really what you try to do constantly: is look what's next. It really helps. Everybody I've ever interviewed, uh, every successful person, John Chambers doesn't make a difference who it is. They all said uh, 25% of the equation's luck. They said uh, right place, right time, all those, all those things. If you think that it was because of how smart you were that you could control circumstances, it's just not the case. It just, you know, you worked hard to put yourself in a position, but at the end of the day, it has to fall, right? I'm wondering this, how many years are you married now? 57. And, and so how, how have you and your wife managed to keep that together, especially as hard driving as you've been uh, throughout your career and still are? I mean, you've got tons, lots left in the gas tank. So how did you make all that work? Lots of principles, and one after the other. Let me just go through. My, my, my uh, son-in-law, before he married my daughter, came to me and said, I want to marry your daughter. And I said, okay, uh, four things. I love four things. <laughs> well, you have to love my daughter. And that's an emotional experience. It's not something you understand. You just have to love her. If you don't love her, it's going to be hard to spend the rest of your life with it. Second of all, you got to be committed, which is an intellectual decision. You say, basically, I'm committed to this relationship. Third, you got to recognize you're going to have to compromise. 
over time. You and she are going to disagree. You're going to have to come together in the middle. And then the last thing, and maybe most importantly, is you're going to have to sacrifice. Jimmy was a painter. I said, someday she's the breadwinner. She may change her mind. You may have to you change your life, too. So you have to sacrifice. Those are four things that I laid out. Wife and I have had other rules, like never go to bed angry. And I usually, if I have to, I'll apologize before I go to sleep. Never go to bed angry. All right. Spend time alone on a regular basis. You know, minimum every couple of weeks, you should be alone with that person. Because what happens is that person changes. And if you spend too much time separated, you don't recognize the change and you don't change to handle that experience. So that's important. Spend time together. And we also, I believe in vacations. I mean, I, you know, Barbara and I have almost every year, when, once the kids were in camp, we would get in a car and go someplace. And I also recommend this to young marriage. Because in a car, after three or four days, you will have discussed everything. And other little tricks. I mean, I, 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 I have family vacations. I, instead of taking them, I would take them to ski vacations. On, but the best vacation for a family is a boat. Why? Because at night, guess what happens? They can't get away. Yeah. And so you get a chance to talk. So those are the little tricks. Also, transparency. Always don't be afraid to say anything. Barbara and I will we'll, we'll discuss anything. You know, if it's bothering us and by the way, after a while, you get a sense, you said, you're not, you're not doing well, or something's wrong. They'll know that. But we, we discuss everything. We spend a lot of time talking and talking and talking and, and, and more importantly, listening is very important. I found early on that most, you know, spouses don't want your advice. They just want you to listen. <laughs> That's so true. It took me 20 years to learn that. Uh, I think wow. me, me, me too, about 20 years. Yeah, we, I always you know, say my, my greatest accomplishment is having, a, a, you know, unlike I had no family. Now when we go away, we're, we're, we're 16 or 17, which is kind of, you know, very rewarding as far as I'm concerned. You know, you write about exploring your professional passions and aren't only a few lucky enough to do that. I, I doubt trash collectors, bus drivers and grape pickers feel they have that luxury What's your advice to people who either don't think it's practical or may not have the economic options? I want them to dig in and find out what they really, you know, everybody has a next goal. There's no two ways about that. I've never found anybody that didn't want to do something that they're not doing at this point in time. Then they got to figure out how they can do it. So decide what they want to do, what the next goal, no matter how small, how large it is, and then find out a way to do it and then start doing it. I use an example, and I, I would obviously wouldn't want this. Well, I, I'll, I'll get it out. My driver, when I was at chairman of the board of the University of Rochester, weighed well over 300 pounds. And he was a public safety officer, really good guy. But, you know, he was down. He, was, he, he had basically done very poor financially. And I said to him, Steve, what, what do you want to do? And he told me. Over a period of two or three years, he lost 100 pounds. He actually became a sergeant. Then he became a supervisor. You know, he knew what his next goals were. He had, had to get there. And I, basically, it's, it's, it's a process. You, know, you can't lose 100 pounds in three weeks. It's 100 pounds in three years. And it's just changed him completely. He got married again. And he's now living happily ever after. And I just, it's a guy that I just love to hug every time I see. So your, your garbage collector, if he loves the garbage collecting business, stay with it. But if he'd like to play the banjo on the side or, or he'd like to you know, travel, then make sure you start very slowly putting a small amount of money away so that you get, once a year you get a chance to, to travel. Or if you want to, you take, you know, you know, guitar lessons or whatever it might be. Just you've got to, you got to have somebody to talk to you about what your next step is, what your goal might be, and then what the process is, is to get there. So I don't think there's anybody that I've ever met 
so far anyway. There are people, obviously, that there's 10% of the population, which is, you know, down and out, and you probably can't lift them. As you notice, I spend most of my energy and most of my funding, basically, are kids in their, you know, late teens that have made it through the difficult point that have to take the next big jump, which changes their life, which is to go to college or take on a vocational activity or something like that. There, but in general, you can help almost anybody. And almost everybody has you know, the next goal. And, you know, you'll be surprised when you talk to a bus driver. If he's trying to be the best bus driver in the world, you know, things he can do to do that and get satisfaction out of it. Um, how do we get our kids to focus on their passions as opposed to just making as much money as they can, especially now with housing so ridiculously expensive? I mean, my gosh, you know, uh, these kids are feeling the uh, pressure and weight of education being so incredibly expensive that they're uh, paying for it for 20 years down the road. They can't afford houses because houses, even in remote places are super expensive, which can, you know, what you call the blue neighborhood and the village of passion. So what do we tell our kids? Well, you know, to some extent, unfortunately, you know, you have to somehow put your passions aside and make a living for a while. I mean, one of the things I try to get across in my book is that, you know, you may find the passion that's really, you know, that really something you really want to do, but you can't do it just now. And it, that was in my case too. I mean, I, I basically had to become financially secured. It was not that I had to do it, but that's something I really wanted to do. I wanted to make sure that I would never be poor again. So I worked very hard at making money for the first 15 or 20 years of my career. And then I pivoted. That's one of the things that I think is very important, that sometimes you'll have to put your passions aside. But on the other hand, this is a very bad word, but I'll use it. It's example. You have to put an example for your children. You have to tell them that, you know, my work at the University of Rochester has given me more satisfaction than almost anything I've done in my business, business world. So there are many returns, and it isn't only financial. It's basically there are different returns. That's why my fourth part of life is community, giving back. And, you know, you can live on a lot less if you want to. You know, some of my children do it. They want to. They want to live on a lot less. They don't, they don't want my life, my lifestyle. My lifestyle is very nice. They don't want it. They want to live on a lot less and spend their time doing the things they want to do. Because in many respects, some passions don't provide income. My daughter works for a nonprofit. You know, and so that's what she she's chosen that life. And God bless you. She's happy and she's engaged and so forth. But young people, most important thing with young people is to listen. And that's why I try to give young people these four words. And, you know, some people become so principled that they really don't care about where they live, what kind of a house they live in. And you'd be surprised. I mean, you can if you decide on a particular type of life, you can find a way. And I, I guess I disagree if you really are not interested, you know, if you really want to live well and you don't you don't you really want to go to a place where there's a lot of make a lot of money. There are still places in America that you can basically find a good place to live and a job and so forth. There's still locations. You are getting fewer and fewer. I must admit that. And housing is a is a real problem. I, I, I'm, I'm so I'm actually so sympathetic to that. But really, example is important. You have to be the person that shows them that there are many ways of getting satisfaction and that they should understand that over a lifetime, by the way, you know, if you decide that you, you know, not don't want to seek out financial rewards, even if you do just put a little away regularly and find a place you want to go someday, 
And I, in 1988, I got my first real money. I decided to pick out some places I wanted to go someday. And thank God I did it then. There was a, there was a SNL crash. Real estate all over the country was in the tank. So even if you have a very you know minimal compensation, put money away, there'll be a point in your life if you're young that things will come down and you'll get a chance. If you've done your homework, you'll find that place that you want to live in. You write the principles and values complement and shape passions. Can you explain that? They interplay. They interplay. They basically your 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 principles may stop you from doing certain kinds of some some passions, or they may may limit the the extent in which you exercise your passions. And that, that's we go back to your money making experience. You know, you can make a reasonable amount of money, and then maybe the next step requires you to do something which is. Eh, not exactly, you know, as that does not exactly fit with your principles. You may have to hurt somebody that you don't want to hurt, and therefore you won't. Your principle will mold that, and also your principle will help you basically exercise your passions. Let me go through mine just for. for I found yep. this idea that I like to help people do better than they think they can. That was my basic passion. Then I found a principle called: if you don't worry about who gets the credit, you can do almost anything. I added that to my passion, all right? And it really worked out. Then I went one step further, another principle. Try to deflect credit. And something really lit up. This has happened in my mid-business career. When someone says to you, Mark, you've done a great job, the immediate response should be, yeah, I did okay, but Mary or Sam really made it happen, all right? Three things happen. First of all, the person who asks the question really thinks very good of you. You then feel very good. And when Sam or Mary finds out, they feel good. It's a trifecta. It's magnificent. So that's where your principle and the principles can basically adjunct your passions or limit them or actually expand them sometime. But you add these and their principles are little simple sentences that you attach on to your passions. I could go on for hours on this one, but all right. <laughs> you, you worked on Wall Street uh, as you've talked throughout the show here where people have an insatiable appetite for more money, more possessions, and other things. But what was what was and your advice to new hires about proper mental mindset to lead a balanced life? Well, I, I think that that that's it's 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 very complicated because you're in you're in this morass of people that have gone into a business because they think they're going to make a lot of money. I understand that. And it's basically that's where you got to get your principles and put them up there on your on, on the board next to your office. I, I, my, I just, again, use my example. Example is important. Be an example. I ran a company for 20 years and I was the CEO or the head guy, number one person, managing partner. I paid myself the most only one of those 20 years. That, that, that sends a message. Also, you know, be there all the time. You know, make sure if you're, if you're a working person that you're there early in the morning, late at night, you know, be that kind of person or recognize that if you're not going to be that kind of person, that you're not going to do OK, but you're not going to do great. You have to recognize this balance that I've talked about. You know, you could you if you there's a case that I, I looked at there, the, the people, person works his way through the ladder too quickly and then he gets too much or she gets too much responsibility. And that responsibility basically eliminates the family because you got to travel all over the world. You're the CEO and you're only 40 years old. And all of a sudden, your family goes down the tubes and you basically have lost the war. So you go up the ladder a little slower, spend a little more time with your family. 
And by the time you get to be CEO at 50 or 60, you know, you're, you have a, your family's gone and they're happy and you have a family. But it's basically allocation of time. I must give you, I'll give you one of my little tricks. On Every year I, I sit down and look at things in, in December, usually when I'm on a boat or something where I'm away for everything. I used to write down the hours that I allocate to self, family, work, and community. And, you know, you'd be surprised how you end up, you know, well, my work is, you know, 80% of what but my time, what am I doing? So next year, I made a rule, going to spend a little more time on some of these other things, including self, by the way. You know, taking care of self is important. A lot of people do, they work too hard and all of a sudden their, fel- their health is worthless. And then nothing's worse than being 16 and having a heart attack. I mean, it, that doesn't work at all. So this, this is the balance. And by the way, it's a juggling act. You're going to have one of these two things in the air at all times. And, you know, when you go into, a, like I went to Lehman Brothers, I called the family together and said, Next couple of years are not going to be easy. You're not going to see as much from me. And so therefore, you know, pay attention. And don't, you, you set an expectation. You set an expectation. And it didn't work out exactly right. I mean, our oldest son was annoyed at that. He, you know, I wanted, wanted his old man and I wasn't there. Uh, but you know, then quickly when I got to a certain point of the buzz, I said, I made a rule. At six o'clock in the evening, I was in my car and I was home at the house at seven. And I made that rule. And even though there were clients, and so I said, I'm see you guys take care of that. I'm going home. And that's why I think I maintained a reasonable family relationship, you know, because I spent the time and our vacations were vital. I mean, you take these kids out and you go take them skiing or take them on a boat or, you know, you spend some real time with them. Of course, I got tricked into this concept of quality time and I did spend quality time. But unfortunately, it's not quality time that's most important. It's time. The more time you spend, the better it is. And I, there are friends of mine who spent more time with their families and they're closer to their families. I, I, I agree with you. I, I used to get up at 4.35, get to the gym, have breakfast, and I would make sure I was home um, by six every night for dinner. And uh, it turned out pretty well because I speak to my daughters every day, 365 days of the year, every single day. Oh, God bless. That, that's yeah. Terrific. So I think you're right. It's not about the items you give them. It's the time. And now what it comes out to my kids say the same thing. He said, you didn't, uh, you gave us what we gave us great things, but it's all the time you put in, which is what's appreciated. And they get older. They even recognize it some more when they know their push for time. They go back and recognize what you did when you did it. (laughs) Well, I'm out here visiting my daughters in LA and we're and they're And after the show, they're literally picking me up to take me for a weekend in national park. Um, you write about principles and learning to be a good teammate and partner. Many partnerships, both in business and personal, don't make it because they aren't willing to compromise and sacrifice. People tend to walk away if they don't get what they want. What process do you go through to teach your teams for the need to view each other as important as themselves? And how do you encourage people to work for the whole and not just themselves? And you start off with example, a simple word example. You have to walk the walk and talk the talk. No, talk, talk, and then, then walk the walk. You have to do it. No matter what, what it is or where you are, you have to be the person. This idea of not paying yourself the most, you know, was very important. Uh, finding out, in my case, you know, being, I had a woman that part-time would tell me any one of my employees getting married, that death in the family. For example, one young man was giving his kidney to his brother. I called him the morning before the operation. And that, you know, I didn't do that because I wanted to get around, but it got around that this guy cares. So the first of all, you have to you have to set an example. Second of all, you have to care. And third, you have to do certain things that show people 
that you, you're involved. In other words, if there's a difficult problem, you don't go home, you do stay there. Or if it's a difficult problem, you arrive early in the morning. So that, that's kind of important. Also, you do some mechanical things. At Ferment Cells, basically, I wanted everybody to be a shareholder. In fact, I, got, I ended up with 200 out of 800 people, with 200 shareholders. Not in the first uh, six months of buying the company back, I didn't have to go to work. <laughs> These people were pulling the rock up the hill without me because they were excited. They were basically owners of the company. And that's what I've always believed. Also, you know, I could have taken a big chunk. One of my compatriots owned 50% of the company. I own 10. There's a big difference. You know, I wasn't greedy. In fact, there's a, when we brought in, there's a case at Harvard Business School. How did you, you know, reallocate the stock when you, when you took over the company? I called the 20 top people in. I had them evaluate the other 19 people. And when someone came and said, you know, I only got two and a half, but I should have got three. I said, no, no. Your partners gave you two, and I took a half away from myself and gave it to you. That's why you have two and a half. And so things like that that are mechanical a bit, and also having regular communications and transparency. Sounds cliched, but it's so true. If everybody knows the situation and there's nothing hidden, you, you get better results from the team. They feel like they're part of it. And I tried to communicate constantly with people, you know, what was going on, why it was going on, and so forth. Ed, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today. I hope people will be uh, getting the book. And I think the book is really great for younger people. I think that they can really learn a lot uh, from this. And clearly, uh, the next book that you have, we're going to have to have you back. And I expect that you'll have the same, maybe even more energy that even the next time I see you. I, I think I think your your age is reversing. They're not getting older. You just keep getting younger. So no, I, I my golf game is slipping a bit, though. <laughs> well, I hope you have a wonderful weekend. Stay healthy. And um, we'll look forward to seeing you again in the future. Hey, Mark, thank you for having me. I appreciate it very much. It's been very interesting. Thanks for the questions. My pleasure. Everybody have a wonderful weekend. And uh, this Wednesday, we have a Nobel Prize winner on. So I hope we'll see you that. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.